0: We are less than two weeks away from Rosh Hashanah, correct? Yep. So what I, I'd like to do is talk about Rosh Hashanah, but obviously from the standpoint of not Musar, you know, you got to do tshuva and all that, but which is of course true, but from the standpoint of the Hashkafah. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I can finish it today, but certainly next week, Uh, If not today, I will be finished it, you know, uh, certainly by next week. Because there's a lot of concepts, you know. Um, Yeah. So the first question that we have to ask ourselves is uh, what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? What really goes on? Now, if you ask the average Jew, right, then he would tell you, well, I'll tell you. What happens on Rosh Hashanah? is called din, or judgment. And that's exactly what we say, and so on. Hayam hara and today is a, a day of judgment, and so on, you know. But I'll tell you something very surprising. <clears throat> the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah is not judgment. It's true that the world is judged. That is true. But that's not the what's called the overarching or the over over idea of what goes on in Rosh Hashanah. That's a strange comment. But that's really true. So we need to understand what really goes on in Rosh Hashanah. If it's it is Din, but that's not the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah. So we need to think about that. Second thing, second question is that you know, it, 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 it's hard to understand. You know, we, let, let's assume you on is Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, right? How could you have a judgment day once a year? Doesn't make sense. You imagine if New York City announced that there's no ju- there's judgment, the courts are only open once a year. What would happen? You have a pandemonium. I mean, that's what's happening now in New York, obviously. But, and the courts are really, uh, and the courts are closed because they let them out. You know, it's unbelievable what's going on in New York and many places and so on. But it, you cannot have a Yom Hadin, a Judgment Day, a court being open once a year. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. Because if that ever happened, then everybody would say, well, for 364 days, I don't have to worry. It's just that the day that the courts are open, that's when I have to worry. But that can't be. That makes no sense at all, you see. So that's a very difficult thing to understand. What does it mean that Rosh Hashanah is Yim Hadin, that God judges everything? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Besides that, it says in Masechet Rosh Hashanah that Odom... Adam nidon b'chol Yoim That really a man is judged every day. Not just on Rosh Hashanah. You see. Now that makes sense. Because people are doing things all day long. You know, they have activities and so on. So they're, they're always doing things. So it makes sense that, you know, a person has to be judged in terms of what he does. Good or bad. Every day. So then what does it mean? What's the difference between Judgment that occurs once a year, and a judgment that occurs, you know, once uh, every day. Obviously, there has to be a tremendous difference. You see, because Rosh Hashanah is also a day, so Rosh Hashanah would be a judgment day even without Rosh Hashanah. You see, because it's a day. If every if every day there's a judgment, well, guess what? Rosh Hashanah is a is a day in and of itself, even if it wasn't Rosh Hashanah, which is a holiday, right? A Yom Tov. So then the question is, what is different about the judgment on Rosh Hashanah that is not the same as the judgment of every day? That's a very important question. So obviously, there's something much more deeper here, you see. Now, then there's another question that we can ask. Every Jewish holiday corresponds to some type of a Jewish historical event. We know that. For instance, right? Pesach is the Ziyat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. Then you have uh, Shavuot, which is Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. And of course, Sukkot, whether it be because of the clouds of glory, or huts, whatever that be. And Yom Kippur is when Moshe Rabinu came down because of the Cheto Ego, he came went up to, to God to, uh, to get forgiveness. And then he came down on Yom Kippur, right? Uh, and then, of course, you have Hanukkah, which is the Maccabees, and you have Purim, which is Ahasuerus, and so on. But we can ask ourselves the question, what does Rosh Hashanah correspond to? There's no Jewish event that occurred on Rosh Hashanah, You see? What occurred on Rosh Hashanah, really, is the creation of Adam HaRishon in Chava. That's it. But there's no Jewish historical event that occurred. Right? So, if that's the case, are we going to say, therefore, that uh, Rosh Hashanah corresponds to a non-Jewish event? Because we know Adam HaRishon is not Jewish, obviously. The first Jew was Avraham Avinu, that we know. That's why he's called an Ivri, a Hebrew. And that's who we are. We're really the Hebrews. That was the original name that we had, Avram or Ivri. And Ivri means the other side. Because Avraham Avinu came from the other side of the Euphrates. And that's why he's called Aver or other side. So therefore, Adam HaRishon wasn't Jewish. Avraham Avinu was the first Jew. So clearly, even though he was created on that day, right, it's not a Jewish historical event. But that's bizarre, you know. Then what does it have to do with us? And why then would Rosh Hashanah be on the first day of Tishrei when Adam was created? Because obviously he has nothing to do with Judaism. It's a very interesting question, you see. And then the question is, we know that what's the Hebrew date of Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is it's Aleph Tishrei, the first day of Tishrei. Well, theoretically, if you think about it, Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Hadin. The question then is, well, why is a a Yom Hadin a judgment day on the first day of Tishrei? Theoretically, it could be on any day, right? any other day besides Aleph Tishrei. So why is Aleph Tishrei picked for Yum Hadin, for a Judgment Day on the entire world? That is the question. Another question that we can ask, we know that we have free will. And because we have free will, which means that we can do, we can actually decide what we want to do. So because we have free will, therefore we have responsibility. In other words, whatever we do, we are responsible for. Because since we have free will, what free will means is that we are not compelled to do something. You know, we have free will. We can do whatever we want, you see. So we know, therefore, that the only time you could judge anyone is if they have free will. If you are compelled to do something, you obviously cannot be judged because you are not responsible for what happened because you don't have free will. It was placed there in your mind by God. So obviously, he's not going to judge you, right? Any judgment that he would do would be completely unfair because you were not the one who decided to do something. You were compelled to do it, you see. So that's obvious, that the only way you can be judged is if you have free will. Yet we see, for instance, in the Tanek right? Uh, we see, therefore, that everything is judged. Everything that lives is judged. That means uh, angels are judged, animals are judged. You know, all the hundreds and hundreds of trillions of different species of animals, actually it's not species, scientists estimate there's between 10 and 100 million species. But that means all the living creatures, which are trillions, they are judged. But what doesn't make sense about that is, is that an animal doesn't have free will. If an animal doesn't have free will, then why would you judge an animal? Yet we know that everything is really judged. So, therefore, that's a very difficult question to answer. Why is everything judged? Even things which have absolutely no free will. And believe me, animals have no free will. Whatever they do, God, you know, angels control all the mindset of animals, and they are compelled to do whatever the angel puts into their mind instinct, whatever. So the question is, why would animals be judged? And we know that everything is judged. You see? Okay. Now, another question, when you think about it, it's really difficult to understand. Imagine if you have to go to court, right? And you are being tried in a civil court, or let's say even in a criminal court. You are being tried if you're going to live or die. Let's assume so, right? You means not you, but a person. Imagine a person is being tried. Did he or did he not commit a murder, let's say? Right? So, okay. I mean, that's frightening. What would a person do? He'd be up all night with anxiety, tremendous fear. Right? Why? Because he would be afraid that they'll find him guilty, and then he will receive the death penalty. Especially when you think about it, when he goes to court, he's sitting in a court, there's an entire courtroom with people. There's a jury all looking at him, right? And he's got a defense attorney trying to defend him. But he knows that he can easily turn, you know, the wrong way, and he can be found guilty, let's say, of murder say he's been accused of murder, and as a result of that, he will be sentenced to death. Now, do you think that this guy is going to make a suda, a meal, the night before, right? And invite all his, his family and really celebrate? Do you think that this could be a possible yom tov? Of course not. You know, he's being tried the next day for murder. He's not going to have a soda, a meal, a feast, you know. Where all of a sudden, uh, what he eats at the meal is great food, you know, and uh, you know, and, and so on. So the question then is, it boggles the mind. <clears throat> we know that Rosh Hashanah is a yom tov. In fact, we say it in kiddush; it's called a holiday. But the question is, wait a minute. If the essential idea of this holiday is that we will be tried where the books of life and death are opened in front of God, right, and He's going to judge us, Mavis and Chaim Vahamavis, you know, life and death. So, how in the world can we possibly celebrate the night before? Think about that. It's what's called incongruous in English. The fact about what's going to happen the next day, which is life and death judgment, is completely contradictory to the way people act on the night of Yom Tov Rosh Hashanah. That doesn't make sense. In fact, if somebody would walk into the meal, right, and see, you know, the happiness and the simcha and the food that is displayed, you know, and you ask this guy, well, what do you think is going on? He would say, well, I'll tell you what's going on. Obviously, there's something tremendously happy must have happened. And this is a real feast. It's a real celebration. Right? And then you tell the guy, no, not at all. What's about to happen is that all of us, especially the people in this room who are eating, they're about to be judged life or death. So the guy would look at you and say, are you crazy? Do you the behavior that these people are doing is absolutely inappropriate to what is about to happen, which is a judgment of life and death. And he'd be right. So the question then is, how could Rosh Hashanah be a Yom Toiv? You see? And we know it is. We make Kiddush, we have great food, you know, we make Bracha, and so on, we celebrate. So that's the question. How can a celebration be the appropriate, uh, you know, uh, behavior on a day which is being the person is being judged for life and death, and it's not just this person; the entire Jewish people, you see, are being judged. So then, how could it be a Yom Tov for the Jews? That is the question. <clears throat> you know. Then there's a very interesting Midrash Chazal that say the following that the Malachim said to God you know, uh, well you know, uh, it's really a Yom Tuf, so maybe we should say Hallel. Now Hallel is obviously a prayer that we say when you want to praise God. So the Malachim say, you know, well you know, if it's a Yom Tuf, then why don't we say Hallel? You see? Interesting idea to say Hallel on Rosh Hashanah. So God says to the Malachim, "Well, since the books, uh, the book of life and death is open before me, you can't say Hallel. You know, it's on the contrary. Everybody's frightened. You see, so you can't say Hallel. You see. So the question is, what's the Malachim talking about? What, what, what are they thinking?" They know that Rosh Hashanah is that the books of life and death are open, right? So how can they say to God, well, let's say Hallel. And they themselves should have said to to ask themselves, why in the world is this Yom Tov? You see, that should have been the question. But to suggest to God that they should say Hallel, right, because it's a Yom Tov, and because everybody seems to be celebrating, that is very difficult to understand, you see. That's another, another very difficult question to ask. Then we know that in the Musaf there are three paragraphs or topics. We say Sukim that refer to God being King. That's called Malchuyos, Malchuyos, Malchyot, That God is King. So we say many uh, verses, ten of them probably that we refer to God as being king of the world. Then the next topic is also, I think, Temsukim, where we say zichronot, where we ask God to remember, you know, what the Avot did, what Noach did, you know, that you remember them and that you, uh, that you should remember the merits, the good deeds, the mitzvot that they did, and therefore spare us because of our ancestors. Then the next topic in Musaf is Shofrot, Shofarot, which is blowing the shofar. So we mentioned many psukim, right, uh, of shofar. You know, that God blew the shofar by Matan Torah, and so on. So we mentioned those. that also. So the question is, what does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? You know, why are we mentioning these three things, What's their connection to Rosh Hashanah? You see. Also, it's interesting that uh, the, the the question is, why do we blow a shofar? Why? It's a very strange mitzvah. All of a sudden, you pull out a shofar and you blow a shofar. You see. What does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? You see. And not only that, it says that Rosh Hashanah that shofar is a holik the Israel it is a statute that is is a hidden meaning to the Jewish people so that's the question what does it really mean what is the real mystical meaning of shofar that all of a sudden you know we blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah and remember shofar is the major mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah that that is the only mitzvah really, according to the Torah, of, of uh, Rosh Hashanah, you know? So the question is, what is that supposed to do, you see? Now, there are answers. For instance, Rav Saadia Gaon says that, well, he gives ten reasons why we blow shofar. You know, one of us is to remind us that, uh, you know, heaven is listening. Uh, in other words, to remind us of the Torah that was given and that at that time a shofar was also blown. And therefore, we have to observe the Torah. Another one is to wake us up and say, listen, you are being judged, right? So there are obviously, he gives 10 reasons, Rav Sadia Gaon, why shofar is blown, you know. But is there a deeper reason? Is there a mystical reason that we can understand of why shofar is blown? Also, you'll notice that the sounds that come out of a shofar, okay, there's a tekiah, a long blast, right? Shvarim. It's what's called uh, shvarim is a uh, you know three short blasts. Then you have trua, which is, a, it's called a staccato, ta 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 you know, and so on, rapid blasts. Then again, then again, you have the long blast and so on, you know. So the Chazals say, what what what's the point of these sounds? And the answer is that in some way they emulate crying, Yivova, Yolola. They they emulate crying, and if you think about it, when a person cries, there are three types of sounds that he emits. One is a long wail, that's a, that is a tequila It's a long wail, you see. Then, when a person cries, he sighs. You know, three short. Sighs they're short, and that's called a sigh, you see. And then another crying is when a person breaks down, and that's a staccato dot, 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 and so on. you know So if you think about it, all these sounds emulate crying, and that's really what you do when you applaud a chauffeur. You see, so the question that we have to ask is, why? You know, what is a chauffeur? have to do with crying. So like I said, the first question was, is why are we blowing shofar altogether? You know? And the, qu- the second question is, okay, even if we blow shofar, why does it resemble, wh- why does it imitate crying? You see. <clears throat> what does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? <clears throat> now, there's also a very interesting Gemara that it says, there's certain things we do on Rosh Hashanah to confuse the Satan, to confuse the Satan. Yeah. So, somehow he doesn't get wind that there's a judgment going on because if he got wind of it, what would he do? You know what he would do? He would immediately appear in the Bezdin that God is judging everybody, all the Jews and so on. And he would be Mekatreik He would prosecute the Jewish people, you see. So we want to confuse him. So there's certain things that we do. But the real question is, you know, the Satan was created at the beginning of creation. Not only that, the Satan is a brilliant angel. I mean, his IQ is off the charts. You would think that by now, after 3,300 years, for Matan Torah, that's how many Rosh Hashanahs there's been, 3,300 Rosh Hashanahs, you would think that he get it, that he would not be confused. Because he knows when Aleph Tishrei comes, right, that God judges the world. He certainly judges the Jewish people. So the question then is, you know, what's he getting confused about? How can he doesn't know What's about to happen? I mean, he's been around for 5,780 years and this Rosh Hashanah, he will have been around 5,781. So, what's he getting confused about? That's the question. Okay. Then there's another question. We know that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the Akedah, is red. Right? The Akedah is red, which is obviously, the Akedah, we all know what that is. When Abraham took Yitzchak, he took him to a Mizbeach and Haramariah. He bound him up. Uh, and he was about to cut his throat when, of course, a malach stopped him. That God does not want you to kill him. You got to take him off. You know? Now, the question then is, why are we reading that? is it because we want to mention the merit of Avraham Avinu that he was willing to sacrifice his son, right, because of God's commandment? And therefore, what we're trying to remind God, so to speak, or at least mention, is the incredible thing that Avraham Avinu, that he listened to God's commandment to slaughter Isaac, Yitzchak, right? And therefore, that should be a tremendous merit for what our forefather, Avraham did. You see? Well, that's a possibility, and that's why we did it. I'll tell you something what's interesting about that. You know, Avraham <clears throat> did that about 4,000 years ago. Now, that is a very long time ago. It's amazing that the Jews can still get credit or merit for something that happened 4,000 years ago. And that we've been using this, you know, to to, to uh, sort of like accumulate merits based on what Abraham Avinu did four thousand years ago. That's a long time ago. You you'd think that God would say, "Okay, enough is enough." I mean, how much how many times should I have to give you credit for something happened, even if it was very great, which it was, but how many how many years? Do I have to give you credit for something that happened 4,000 years ago? You see? So then the question is, so why are we mentioning the Arkada at all? You see? So that is a very interesting question. And then there's one last question. We would think that Rosh Hashanah is the Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, right? And uh, then comes the Aseret Yemei Tshuva, the 10 days of repentance, right? And then comes Yom Kippur. So the question is this, you know, why does that come after a judgment day? Yes, what should be is there should be 10 days of tshuva, and then there should be a judgment, because then maybe since we did repentance, we did tshuva, right? Then God will forgive us. You see? So if that's the case, Right, Rosh Hashanah should come after the Teshuvah, not before. It doesn't make sense that the Yom HaDin comes first. And then the 10 days of repentance comes after, and then Yom Kippur. But that shouldn't be. Yom HaDin should come after Teshuvah because first God should give us a chance to repent and then to judge us because hopefully everybody would have repented. Why would God judge us before repentance? What logic is that? Okay. For those who have been following me, I've asked about 14 questions. Anybody been counting? I hope so. Anyway, now, Each one of these questions probably has, each, has an answer for each question. You know, and so on, I'm sure. Each of these questions probably have been asked in the past. And for each one, you can have a different, separate answer. But that's not the way you approach Hashkafa. The way you approach Hashkafa is really unity, unify. Truth always has one idea that answers many, many, many different things. In other words, if you have many questions, you don't have to answer them. If I asked you 14 questions, I don't have to give you 14 different answers. Beauty, or teferet, is when you have 14 questions and there's one answer for all 14. You see? That's beauty. And really, that's what truth is. Once you hit the truth... Once you understand the real bottom line, as they say, you see, then that should be able to provide an answer to every single question. So, then the question, of course, is ultimately, what is the answer to all 14 questions? Is it possible that there's actually one answer to all these questions? That would be interesting. And the answer to that is yes, there is. There's actually an answer to all 14 questions. What is that answer? And the answer to that is, is that the answer to this is the essence of Rosh Hashanah which was the original question I asked. You see, the reason why we have all these questions is because most people do not know the essence of Rosh Hashanah. They'll all tell you it's a Yom Adin. In fact, you could check it out. Go over to any of your friends and ask them, you know, what exactly happens on Rosh Hashanah? They'll all tell you, what do you mean what happens? The whole universe is judged. I should say the whole creation is judged. Right? That's what they'll say. And that is what most people think. However you have come a long way in your understanding of the divine plan. I don't know if I think there's a 16th or 17th shir, you know, that I've been given. So you've heard a tremendous amount of hashkafa. you see. And the answer to that idea, the interesting idea is that you already know the answer of what the essence is. Except the problem that you have is you've never really connected the dots. So therefore, the answer to all of these questions lies in what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah, you see. And that's critical. And the answer also is something which is fundamental to the whole divine plan, you see. And that's really what we have to search for. What exactly is the essential idea what goes on in Rosh Hashanah, you see? What really goes on? Now, of course, Yom Hadin is part of it. It's obvious. I mean, it says everything is judged. But is that the bottom line, as they say in English? Is that really what happens only? That it's a judgment day? And therefore, God wants to judge everybody and people get rewarded or they get punished, you know, which is obviously the result of judgments and so on. You know, there are consequences to everybody's acts, you know. And of course, what we do is tshuva. We try to repent. Why? Because we don't want God to punish us. We don't want the Rebunah Shaloylam to punish us for our misdeeds and our sins and so on. So, we are busy doing tshuva. But the question is, why are we doing tshuva? Is it to avoid or to avert A negative din? Is that why we do it? Or, no. The reason why I do tshuva is another idea, which is interesting, you see, which most people are unaware of. So what we see, interestingly enough, is this. Is that there's a second, or I should say the real reason, the primary reason for repenting, tshuva, you see, and that's the real reason why we do tshuva. Of course, secondarily, it's to avoid punishment. Of course. We don't want God to punish us, right? And therefore we repent of our sins. You know, we say, Right? We say, We have sinned. We say it so many different times during the, the uh, you know, certainly on Yom Kippur and so on. But we do tshuva. Uh, but most people think that the reason for doing chuva, like I said, is to avoid a harsh sentence, a harsh verdict, to avoid judgment or punishment, I should say. But I will tell you something very strange. The real reason we do chuva is not really for that reason, although that's included in the concept, that's true. It's for a much deeper reason. And guess what? That deeper reason is connected to the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah. There is something that happens on Rosh Hashanah which is profound. And it does require tshuva. It does require repentance. You see. But not for the ideas that you think about. You see. So, we need to now go into uh, the real understanding, one, of what the essential idea of, of Rosh Hashanah is. And the second idea is what the real reason for tshuva is, other than the obvious reason because you want to avoid a harsh judgment. But we really want to know the essential idea. And I'll tell you something, once you understand this, then your Rosh Hashanah will be different. You see, because then I will show you what you should be praying for, you see, in order to bring down tremendous, a, a tremendously good year, because once you understand the essential idea, then you know exactly, in other words, what God is really doing. Then you have a tremendous ability, you see, to pray for the right thing, because you know what's going on. You know what you're being. You know why you're being judged. You see, and therefore, when you mispalel, when you make when you pray to God. You will know exactly how to answer the judge. You see, that's uh, so. That's the beauty of understanding the essential idea. So, therefore, uh, obviously, I will, I, will not, I can't continue now because we're at the end of the session. But I will complete the share next week, right before Rosh Hashanah. And of course, you can think about it, share it with your spouses, whatever. And uh, yeah, and then you'll enter Rosh Hashanah. With a completely different frame of mind. Any questions? Yeah, what's the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah? What's the answer to that question? What? What's the? What say that again? What? Give us one answer. What's the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah? Ah, you want me to say it now? Yeah, I can't sleep. <laughs> well, I I don't want to be responsible for you, canons. You're not sleeping, you know. <clears throat> uh, I, I I will tell you the answer. And then I, well, then the whole elaboration of it, okay? Next week. Okay. You ready? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The answer to that is this. Imagine somebody opens a business, yes? And he, has a, he opens up, a, let's say, a factory, right? And he's got, let's say, 100 workers working for him, right? Right? So what does he have to do all the time? What, what is the essential? To keep the factory going and to make sure, right, that he's making a profit. And the answer is that he has to evaluate the business. Every business, if they want to make a profit, needs an annual evaluation. It's called an assessment. You know, you have to evaluate do I need all these people? How are they doing? You know, uh, do I have too much inventory? Am I making enough profit? Maybe I have to advertise more, right? Maybe I have too much inventory. What about my marketing, right? Everybody has to evaluate their business. And they usually do it on an annual basis. Why? Because what happens if it's not working out? They're not making money. You see? So therefore, when they evaluate it, ultimately, what do they do? They have to make a readjustment, right? Right? depending on what the evaluation yields or discloses, based on that, they now have to make adjustments. That's common to every business. Am I right? Well, you know, yes. Guess what? The world creation is the business of God. God created the entire world for a business. What's the business? He wants to accomplish a certain goal. Now, in the world, it's money. But in God's world, it's tikkun. God wants the world to be rectified. You see? Ah, that's interesting. So, if he wants the world to be rectified, guess what? He has to assess where is the status of tikkun Now. How much has to be, how much was rectified? How much has to be rectified, you see? And therefore, God has to make adjustments. Got it? So that's really what we're talking about. It's not a judgment, per se, of people. What it really is, is an assessment of the entire tikkun process of the whole bria, you see, And then when God looks at it and says, okay, where are we holding? You know, are we 80% finished? Are we 95% finished? And if he decides, well, it's not moving fast enough, then I have to, I got to move things around. Right? It could be that a guy says, listen, I don't need, I got 100 workers, but I don't need 30 of them. It's a waste of money. So he gets 30 workers, the pink slip. Right? Of course, those 30 per workers who work, they don't want the pink slip. But this guy says to himself, listen, I, I need to make money. You know, I'm not a charity organization. So that's obvious to us. So the, the, the idea is that the creation is an endeavor. It's a process. It's a business. But the business is not money. The business is tikkun for ilam habo, for the future world. That's what God looks at, and that has tremendous repercussions in terms of what we do, how He judges, and as you will see, it really answers all the questions. Okay, Rachel, you'll be able to sleep. Yes, very good. Got it. Yes. Now, and that's a very important, and hardly anybody knows what I just said. God willing, we put it online, and then they could find out. Well, wait until next week until I finish all the answers and all that, right? Correct. Yeah, so obviously, I've answered all the questions, you see. But what it shows you is, you know, every area of Judaism could be looked at that way, you know, where you have many questions, but you really have only one one answer, you know. In many ways, that's the concept of a Mishnahic map. So the map is an entire one idea, where everything on the map is unified. You see? That's the real way to try to figure out what's going on. Not by having 14 questions and having 14 different answers. No. When you connect all the dots, when you look at the essential idea, and therefore all the dots are connected, right? Then you're able to see what's called a totality, a complete picture. And therefore, all the questions are answered. You see? You know, they say when a person dies, and every, everybody who dies, or everybody who lives, actually, you know, they, they have all kinds of questions. Why did God do this? And why did God do that? There are thousands of questions that a person has in his mind during his lifetime. You see? And then it says that when he gets to heaven, everything is answered. Everything. Now what does that mean? Do you think it means that all of a sudden God is going to sit down with you or an angel is going to sit down with you and go through everything, every question that you had? Why this? Why that? No. He is going to give you the essence of who you are. The essence of your nishama. Once you understand who you really are, then you will understand what your divine mission was. Because your divine mission is based on who your neshamah is, you see, and how it fits in the grand scheme of creation, you see. So that's not a mishnahic map. That's called a creation map, you know. You will see the map of everything, and that's how immediately you know all the answers, you see, because everything fits. All your questions are now answered, you see, because like I said, you understand who you really are and therefore what your mission is and therefore did you accomplish your mission? Did you not accomplish your mission? So then what does God do to make you accomplish your mission? And so on. But you understand it not because somebody's got to sit down with you and answer a thousand questions. It's because they show you the essential idea it's called the essential information, and from that information you understand everything. You see the way it works? Yeah, <clears throat> that's the way it works. and by the way, you know it says there's a Hazal tell us that an, in in an infant when it's in the womb or uterus of a woman, right, then an angel teaches the kid the entire Torah, right? That's what it says. And then, when the kid comes out, the angel presses the area right under the nose, and the kid forgets everything. Uh, So the question is, therefore, why do you have to teach the kid all of Torah? You see? And why make him forget it? And the, the idea to that is a very interesting concept, because that person, before he comes down, has to know his mission. You see, everybody has to know their mission, even if it be at the level of the neshama, of the soul. Because how could you send out somebody without him knowing exactly what he's supposed to do? So if that's the point, then the question is, well, why not just tell him what his mission is? Why do you have to teach him the entire Torah? You hear the question? And the answer is, Because the knowledge of what your mission is, really, is part of the grand design of the entire creation, which is the entire Torah. Because the Torah is a blueprint for everything. So it's not that they tell you your mission individually with no reference to anything else. No, your mission has to be understood within the context of the entire creation All the missions that have to be done. And then you understand that it's called a creation map. You see? With one idea, you understand not only what you have to do, but why you have to do it. And how it will assist the entire creation to come to a tikkun. You see? That's why the Malach has to teach you the entire Torah. You understand? Very important idea. Because you cannot just know an individual mission. Then it just hangs there alone. There's no clarity in that. The real clarity comes when you see everything and where you fit in it. That's clarity. <clears throat> you see? You know, I'm reminded of a, um, a mashal, of an analogy. Imagine there's a fly, Right? That has human intelligence. Okay? And what it does is flying around the room, and all of a sudden it lands, right? As soon as it comes into the room, it lands on a painting or a picture that's on the wall. Now, since the fly has human intelligence, it looks down, and it's like, what is it, like a quarter of an inch away, even less from the picture. So it looks down and says to itself, wow, what is all of this? What is this? And it begins to walk over the picture, you see. And as it walks, it sees many different shapes and colors, you see, because it's looking at the picture right on top of the picture. And then it walks around for about an hour, and after the hour, and it went around the entire picture, it says to itself, what in the world was that? All of a sudden, somebody comes into the room and slams the door and the fly gets frightened and it flies away from the picture and it's headed toward an open window. But before it goes out of the open window, it turns around and it sees the totality of the picture. And you know what it says? It says, aha, that's what it is. You see, clarity comes Not from pieces, fragments, individual ideas. Clarity comes from the totality. That's a very important principle and concept. You see, and that is why the angel teaches the person not what his mission is, but the totality of the entire design of creation is, which of course is the Torah. Because the Torah is the blueprint of all creation you see. And then all of a sudden the Neshama understands not only what it has to do, but what it has to do in terms of, in respect to the entire creation. So it understands what it has to do, it understands what creation is all about, and it understands the necessity of its mission, how it fits into everything else. What an incredible clarity, you see. But what does the Malach do? He makes you forget. Why? Because if you would remember, then you'd never sin. You see? Because with that type of an insight, who is going to sin? Nobody. Therefore, the malach has to press, you know, right under the nose, and you forget. So now you can actually have free will because you don't know what the answer is. But the interesting thing is that since the Malach taught you, you know, and he, which means he taught you Neshama, obviously he doesn't teach the infant, he teaches the soul in the infant. So intuitively, the infant will know, intuitively, it has a certain sense, you see, of what its mission is, you see. So let's assume that this the mission of this infant or embryo, whatever infant, is to become a healer, a doctor. So automatically the kid will grow up and say to himself, you know, that's interesting. I'd like to apply to medical school. I like medicine. You see? Now, why would that kid have that feeling? Why would he have that idea? You see? Is this chance? And the answer is, of course not. This lies deep in the soul of that person. Why? Because that's his mission. Yeah, but wait a minute, how does he know his mission? Because that's what the Malach taught him, you see? So in the end, what the Malach taught you gives you ultimately the sense of direction that you have to take. Of course, within that direction, you have free will. You know, you could be a good doctor or a bad doctor. You know, you can cheat your patients or not care about them or whatever. Okay, that's free will. But the mission, obviously, is that you have to be a healer because that's how you fit into creation. You see? And that's why, therefore, we now understand the reason why you have to forget so you can have free will. Because obviously, if you remembered what he taught you, who would sin? But the reason why it has to be done so you can ask, well, if you're going to forget it anyway, why bother with teaching in the first place? And the answer is that you may forget consciously but you remember spiritually. And that is what directs you in life. You see? And that is why some people have interest in medicine, science, business, law, counting. There's so many different ways of engaging in life. He has that because that's his chilek. That's his mission, to engage in the tikkun process. Got it? But what I'm trying to tell you is that clarity comes from unification, to unify all things. And then you see the fragment within the confines of that uh, uh, structure. You see? Uh, So that's a very important lesson, that the real way to learn to think is not by fragments. It is by looking at the totality of everything, and then you see how everything fits. Like I say, to put the jigsaw puzzle together. Anyway, that's what I am going to do next week: is put it together. You see? Any questions so far? Well, actually, I really have done that. I have put it together for you because of Rachel's request, right? Bye. Angel. I can't hear you. What? What did you say? So now when Hashem made, the angel made us to get our tikkun, I don't know what my tikkun is. Whatever you're doing in life is your tikkun. That is what it is. You know? Maybe your tikkun is you know, whatever, to be a housewife uh, to raise Jewish kids in a certain way And also to do different types of mitzvot. You know, women get involved in different things. You know? But people have a feeling of what they would like to do. You see? And when they go about and do it, they are engaging in their mission. Look, think about it. You can't have a person being born and not doing their mission. Because if that was the case, then everybody's birth would be a waste of time. Means nobody would be doing their particular uh, mission of tikkun. So that means everybody would have been created for nothing. So well, obviously the rabbinic islam is not going to allow that. Not everybody does um, remember their tikkun. Remember, not everyone. I'm not talking about remembering. No. Remember. Of course not. I'm saying no, not everyone um, succeeds and accomplishes the tikkun. Because they didn't didn't remember it, or they didn't keep it. No, no, nobody remembers it as if they were taught it, no. No, But they have an intuitive feel. People have an intuitive feel, a drive. Right. And they don't know where it comes from, you see? So we're not talking here about knowledge that you remember because you were taught it. We're just talking about some type of a drive that you have, an idea, you see? Right. Anyway, anybody have questions? Rabbi, have well, it looks like everybody uh, understood this year. Hey, Rabbi, I have a question. And, so, why, yeah? why now, if Corona is still going on, well, like. If what? You speak louder? Sorry. Corona. corona. I want to know. Yes. I wanted, to understand, why is it still continuing? Well, fundamentally because it hasn't completed its job. Look, we have a problem. We don't know the measure of what has to be done. We do not know the amount of sinning. We don't know the consequences of the sin, right? So, we're not aware of the measure of our actions at all, you see? But the Rabboni Shalolim, God knows the exact amount or measure of what we did. You see? So he brought coronavirus to the entire world, because basically the entire world needs a cleanup. And the Jews are suffering terribly, right? Not not only in America, there's so many people that have died or they got sick. I mean, just terrible. But the whole Eretz Israel is suffering terribly. I heard that they're thinking of locking down the entire Israel for the Yom Tov. Can you imagine? That's crazy. Yeah, I, yeah, that's what I hear. There's a real possibility they're going to lock down. You don't lock down. The whole Eretz Israel means you cannot go out of your house. That means you, you, there will be no shul. Imagine there's no shul on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Can you imagine that? So everybody's in their house because the whole country's in lockdown. Why is the whole country in lockdown? Because they cannot control the virus, right? It's out of hand. They can't control it. You see, the amount of people that are getting the virus increases every day. There are thousands and thousands of people that are getting the COVID-19, you know, every day. So they're desperate. They don't know what to do. The truth is they have no idea what to do, really. You know? Uh, But all of this, ultimately, is an einish. It is a punishment. It is an atonement process, a kapara, you see? And that is why it's happening. How long will it continue for the length of time that uh, whatever the sins are, when that will be, have a kapara. And then all of a sudden, Somebody's going to discover a vaccine and it will be made very rapidly and that will be the end of COVID. But remember, it's not just COVID. People are suffering terribly in terms of panasa. They can't open their business. They're not making money, so they're not paying bills. It is horrendous what is going on. You see? All of this is an einish. Like I said, now, uh, for those people who have listened to my previous year, the one I just gave, you know, I, I said, my I said, poverty is an equivalent of death, right? So you have all kinds of equivalencies, the fear of death, and you have poverty. Extreme poverty is also a death equivalent. And guess what? A tremendous amount of the world is steeped in tremendous poverty, Even those who have businesses, because they can't open their business. You see? But the amazing thing is that, you know, God decides that there there are many people that are not in poverty, you know. And God decides who will escape the Gzera, and who who will escape, and who won't escape, you see. But the main idea is that we don't really know when it will end. It will end when it's done its job. But we do not know what it's. We. job is, you see? But we don't know how much it has to be done. You see? That's the answer to your question. Why do you think Hashem is being so strong with Israel? Why do you think Hashem. Why is Hashem doing what? Why is Hashem doing it? Like giving him, giving them COVID nineteen so strongly, and like they might shut shut it down and all that. Why Israel? Jerry, is reason is have any idea? Because I believe the reason why it is so severe, because God needs to clean up everybody before the Mashiach comes. If you remember in Mitzrayim, Egypt, when Moshe Rabbeinu came, right? Then what it should have been is well, now everybody's going to be redeemed. But that's not what happened. Paroi said no to Moshe. Not only did he defy the Moshe Rabbeinu, he made it worse. He said everybody has to gather their own straw, which meant you don't sleep. Because by day you had to make the bricks. And by night, imagine going in Egypt with a candle looking for straw. That's insane. Do you imagine how difficult it was? So it was terrible. So what God did is He increased enormously the intensity or the labor of the Jews. That's terrible surin. Why? Well, Moshe Rabbeinu did not understand. So Shemot, you know, the end, Parsha Shemot ends with Moshe Rabbeinu going back to God and saying, you know, what is this all about? And if you don't want to redeem them, what are you sending me for? He did not understand. So what we see is a very important idea, that when God is going to redeem the Jews, he's going to make it worse. Why? Because he has to clean up everybody, you see. And therefore he has to give some type of terrible punishment. It's called clean up, because he's about to redeem the Jews, you see. And that's what happened in Egypt. And if it's what happened in Egypt, guess what? It's going to happen today. That is why. There are many things that, the the, the why it's happening, why it's such a terrible decree for Jewish people is because the Russian wants to bring the Gula, you see. So the question is, wait a minute. If he wants to bring the Gula, right, so then why not just wait? Wait until the have gone through more slavery and they will have atoned with more slavery. And the answer is because God did not want to wait because they were already at the Mem Shari Tumah. They were already down to the bottom of the barrel. And if he would have waited, Chazal tell us, then they would not have been redeemed. So could you imagine the difficulty, the quandary as they say? The Jews at the bottom of the barrel. So if God waits until they suffer and therefore are atoned They'll never be able to be redeemed because they'll be in the tuma. so God says I got to take them out but wait a minute I can't take them out because they have not fully expiated or been I have a kapara so therefore God said I have to intensify the Asuran. you see that's why in other words what we see is something very important that what the Rav Hashem will do is that he wants to bring the gulah The problem is is that the Jews have not completed the task of tikkun and there's still many sins. So therefore what God does is He intensifies the asurin, you see, to bring the gula, even though they really have not completed the job. But by the intensification, you see, then they will have completed the job. But the problem is to complete the job needs a terrible uh, what do you call it? A um, uh, dose of suffering, far more than what would have happened, you know, if he would have just let it go. So that's the choice. Is it better to let it go for another couple of hundred years until the Jews naturally will have atoned? Or is it better to bring the gula but intensify the suffering so the gula can happen next year? What is your answer to this question? And that is the problem, so to speak, that God has. Of course, he has no problems. So, therefore, God is going to do exactly what he did to Egypt. He's going to bring the gula quick, but in order to speed up the whole tikkun, he's going to tremendously intensify and magnify the Asurin. And that is why you find that the Jewish people are suffering so terribly. You see. And uh, Israel or America or New York, New Jersey, California, where most of the Jews live, you have tremendous amount of intensification. You see? That is the idea behind the COVID.